It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I am your host, Joe, as always. Thank you so much for listening and, uh, let's say, being my captive audience as we uh, continue the podcast here. I know we the episodes are always kind of few and far in between, but I, I do apologize for that. But, you know, we want to kind of wrap up, let's say, here on 2021 because this will probably be the last episode of the year. We're going to cram in... I'm going to try and cram in seven movies into this episode, okay? We'll do three mini-reviews. Remember how we kind of did that a little while ago? We did three mini-reviews. I think it was actually in the previous episode, in the TIFF episode, where we kind of jammed in a couple of really, like, super, super, you know, bite-sized reviews, let's call them. And uh, we'll spend some more time on the four main movies, which I'm sure you saw in the, in the title of this podcast. But we'll do Dune, No Time to Die, Encanto, which is the latest Pixar movie, and Eternals, which, of course, is the latest, uh, latest Marvel movie. So we'll talk about all that stuff, um, and we'll get to the three mini-reviews in a second. I just It's funny to think that we're at the end of the year. There are so many more movies that have still yet to come out, like Oscar contenders, certainly, because we're we're firmly in the middle of award season, which is always really funny to think that, you know, the, the Oscars are determined from movies that come out like September or October to like December, maybe January or maybe kind of. Right. So it's always really funny to think that. You know, it's like, oh, let's hear the Oscars now in March or April. Let's look back on the movies that came out in October to December. Right? That's kind of how it works, which is hilarious, honestly. But either way, uh, we will talk about um, some of those. It just there, there are a lot of movies still to come. I mentioned, like, I mean, I, I haven't seen West Side Story. I'm, I still haven't seen The French Dispatch, which is really funny. So I got to get to a lot of those films. Um, I admit I've seen as many as many of the blockbuster releases as I can, just because those are the most easily accessible. I, I freely admit. Um, and now that we can, we kind of live in a world where COVID. I mean, COVID has never gone anywhere. That's for sure. But at least in Canada, in Toronto. It felt like things had begun to open up again, and now I think with numbers on the rise and so on, it really feels like things it may not go back into a lockdown, but at least you know things are gonna people are gonna become more cautious. Let's put it that way, right? I mean, look at West Side Story. I just mentioned I haven't seen that movie, but the numbers for the box office for West Side Story were dismal. They were bad. They were quite bad, right? I mean. Disney spent what a hundred million dollars to get that movie remade, and it's a it's a timeless classic. the The original came out in what nineteen sixty or sixty one or what have you. That won like a million Oscars, and it was a it was a smash hit. And it, it kind of felt Disney plus Steven Spielberg kind of hard to uh, let's say hard to hard to fail with that, right? And then of course it got rave reviews, and as I understand, it is quite good. It's just funny because. The reason it did so poorly at the box office is because the demographic it's aimed at, older people in their 50s or 60s, those people are not going back to movie theaters. They're just not, right? They haven't returned yet. I had dinner with my mom last night. I mentioned that West Side Story was in theaters, and she was like, oh, I would love to see that movie, but I'm not going to the theaters to see it. I'm just not going to. And I probably will eventually, and you know, I'm sure it'll come to on-demand services sooner rather than later. Um, but at the same time, boy, that's that is a tough blow for movie theaters who I think felt like maybe they weren't out of the woods, but probably felt like there was like light at the end of the tunnel at the very least. The interesting thing is Spider-Man uh, is coming out later this week. The Spider-Man Three, Spider-Man No Way Home, and I am willing to bet that movie is going to do 
amazingly well. Gangbusters at the box office. Because the funny thing is, the movies that have all done very well during the pandemic, by and large, have been movies aimed towards that, like, I don't know, 18 to 24, or if you want to include, go 18 to 32 male demographic, right? Of which I am right in there, right? I'm in, the, well, I'm in the second one. I'm in the the, the next one, 24 to 32, because I'm old now. But no, in all seriousness, uh, that is, uh, that is, Kind of where things stand, movies that appeal to younger men are the movies that seem to be making money at the box office. So I'm willing to bet Spider-Man 3 in a couple of a couple of days, actually, is going to just absolutely explode. I am going to see that movie, freely admit. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to risk it, and I probably won't see a movie in theaters for another couple of months. I'm going to try and see all of them online, if I, absolutely possible. But there you go. The, a quick uh, chat on the state of uh, the box office right now, although... You know, these movies we're going to talk about, a lot of them did crazy numbers themselves. Um, we'll start with the three mini reviews, okay? We'll, we'll go very quickly through them here. We won't use, like, the musical prompts like I usually do. We'll just go through them uh, very quickly, and we'll start with Red Notice. And, of course, this is the movie that starts, uh, stars, pardon me, uh, Gal Gadot, Ryan Reynolds and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who I will just refer to as The Rock because that is how I will always see him. And I will never, ever in a million years call him Dwayne Johnson because that's boring. That's that's boring. I, 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 I come from an era where this is what you think of when you think of The Rock. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. Yeah, right? Everyone, I think everyone thinks of that when they think of The Rock. Well, maybe not everyone. I guess The Rock has uh, successfully extended his worldwide appeal to like literally like a billion people it feels like right several de- definitely a hundred hundreds of millions let's put it that way right but um red notice look i know everyone and their mother is saying that this is like netflix's most watched movie it was pretty bad i would say and and all things considered it's not bad because of the stars and it's funny because gal gadot ryan reynolds and the rock are basically playing themselves at this point um and there is a twist at the end, and if you don't guess the twist in the first five minutes of the movie, then shame on you. Shame on you, because if you listen to a movie podcast, you have watched enough movies to know what the twist of Red Notice is, right? Like, you know what I mean? If you are this into movies, that you are listening to me, a nobody, talk about movies, then you know what happens by the end of Red Notice before it happens. You one million percent know, and I, I, that's, just, that's just the way it is, right? I will not spoil it just in case people have not seen it yet, but it's just, I don't know. The movie kind of, it almost felt like the twist happens. And then I think like literally seven minutes later, the movie was over and it just, the movie ends. And I almost felt like the entire film was a setup for a sequel. I know creating franchises is something that is so, so valued these days and netflix is is shamelessly doing this and every fran- every uh, every movie studio i should say does this they want to look for a franchise i don't blame them necessarily it just it just feels like red notice is a movie that like someone came up while they were in the shower and then they were like what if we get the rock for this and they're like yeah sure why not <laughs> right i don't know red notice was like it had some funny there were some good laughs don't get me wrong between the rock and ryan reynolds we know they have chemistry because we've seen them in movies before together but at the same time it was just i don't know did i did we really need to spend like what two hours or two and a half hours on this film i personally say no um 
again, though, I know Netflix is not free, but if you pay for Netflix, then you just get this as part of your subscription. So I guess in that regard, because I say a lot, you hear me say a lot on this podcast, well, does... Uh, maybe you should just wait for Netflix in, in, in terms of uh, whether or not you should go pay to see a movie. I understand you're paying to see this movie because you, you pay for Netflix. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's nothing special it, as a, as an adventure action movie. I don't know. Does it really accomplish all that much? It just kind of cribs from better movies, right? Like it cribs from, I don't know, the Uncharted video games. It cribs from Indiana Jones. As most movies, I'll be to be fair, in this genre do. It's just Red Notice. Eh. You know, that's kind of how I think of it. It's like, meh. You're like, oh, show. What's your favorite line of dialogue from Red Notice? I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. I don't remember any single line, any individual line of dialogue from this movie. I really don't. And, uh, of course, there's going to be a sequel, right? I will say, they don't. They only say the words Red Notice once, and they only visualize it um, in, in the sense that, like, it's the for the world's most wanted criminals at literally before the credits roll. And I thought... Kind of a wasted opportunity, right? They feel like they should have been doing that a little more, probably. Anyways, Red Notice, not going to say it's uh, worth your time too much. Free Guy, however, I will say is. Isn't that funny? Uh, The other Ryan Reynolds kind of major release of the past several months, I guess dating back to the summer now, but Free Guy, oddly funny, Oddly funny, and of course, uh, Guy is the name of the main character played by Ryan Reynolds. And if you're not familiar with the concept, it's about like a video game character, like in an MMO game, right? Like a World of Warcraft style game. It's not actually like fantasy stuff, but you know what I mean. Like the uh, the massive multiplayer online games where you you know queue in lobbies and then you join the world, the persistent world where you can do missions and you know go on raids and so on. Right? If you understand that. You, exa- you probably have seen Free Guy, let's be honest, if you understand what I'm talking about when I say queuing up for a raid. But <laughs> at the same time, it's literally just about a character in a video game who, like, I guess, gains sentience or was always alive and they didn't know it until this point. Anyways, my point is that it's an oddly sincere movie. Oddly. Like, for a movie that is about, like, I don't know, like people blowing stuff up in a video game. It is oddly sincere. It has some funny cameos, right? Like Channing Tatum cameos a couple of times in this movie. Pretty great. I think if you listen very carefully, you can hear some great voice cameos. We all know the uh, Hugh Jackman, Ryan Reynolds, like like kind of quote-unquote rivalry that they play up for laughs. Hugh Jackman has a cameo in this movie, although you can't see his face. Um, generally speaking, pretty good. Taika Waititi is like the film's main villain, and it kind of feels like Taika Waititi filmed every single one of his scenes in like 24 hours, and he's like, all right, I got to get out of here, right? And then he and then he left, right? I I'm not I'm not criticizing him necessarily because it was just kind of stupid and silly, but it, it just it felt like he was on a real crunch. They're like, oh, or they could only, like maybe the film's producers could only get Taika Waititi for like that the, that one day or like two days or something, and they really had to cram through every single last one of his uh, one of his scenes. I, I don't know. He was no individual character apart from Ryan Reynolds' character is that is that memorable? Um, Maybe the best friend character, who is also a video game character, perhaps him. Um, again, some some funny laughs in this film. But again, I think that what's really caught me off guard was that it was sincere. It was a pretty succinct adventure. Um, you know, it was kind of your typical, you know, person like not not. I guess fish out of water, right? You know, the kind of person experiences a larger world for the first time and is surprised and, you know, kind of handles it poorly sometimes, but largely handles it very well. I mean, how many movies of those have we seen over the years, right? It's, they're not exactly reinventing the wheel other than that it's about video games and not like the a blast from the past where Brendan Fraser emerges from like a 50s era, like bunker or something, right? I don't know. It's like You guys get what I mean, right? It's a, it's a pretty common concept 
But the um, the the genuine sincerity of specifically around Ryan Reynolds not being his usual wisecracking self, I think, is what really uh, really helps it for me. There, let's put it that way. That's what I really liked about this movie. Um, and of course, it has kind of a a nice pleasant ending, right? Many will criticize the uh, blatant product placement because this is a Disney movie. The blatant product placement at the very end, and I will spoil this, um, whereas I didn't spoil the twist in Red Notice, I will spoil this. At the very end, because it's a video game, you can, I guess in some video games, you can get, like, licensed items, and a guy ends up fighting, uh, he ends up fighting, like, a beefed-up version of himself at the very end of the movie as the final, like, quote-unquote boss battle. And what he ends up doing is he pulls out of his, like, inventory a lightsaber and he fights he fights this guy and then and, and, and the, the star wars music plays and then he you know he he pulls out like the captain america shield and then it cuts to like chris evans who going like what the bleep right and then so i don't know product product placement them taking advantage of star power them just being able to do this because they're disney it's just funny for like a very sincere movie to just look at me like you know bam they're just uh <laughs> here's a lightsaber and captain america shield right and it's just a little silly but i, I also it got a good laugh out of me, and then they wisely went away from that immediately and moved on, right? So not a huge, hugest of deals, but again, eh, kind of sort of worth your watch, I would say. It was, generally speaking, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, and then the last movie in this bite-sized review is Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And boy, let, let me put it this way. Here's the, the quickest possible review of this movie. If you did not like the first Venom, you will not like the second Venom because ultimately speaking, Venom 2 or Venom Let There Be Carnage, Venom 2 is all of the craziest, silliest, dumbest parts of Venom 1 taken out of the movie and then turned up to 11. Like, you remember that scene from the first movie where Tom Hardy, who is getting used to having Venom in his body, sits in a fish tank at a, at a fancy restaurant and like eats I think it was like the lobsters or something, or he tries to eat the lobsters. Or no, you know what it was? He sits in a lobster tank and then he like like tries to eat a piece of steak or something. Like he's a dog. Do you remember that? Anyways, it was a delightfully weird scene. This movie is entirely full of them, one hundred percent full of moments like that, and it just goes on and on and on. It gets a little monotonous at some point, and Woody Harrelson and Naomi Harris as the kind of dual bad guys, sort of right. Uh, they're again, they're fine. You know, I'm not going to complain about them. Woody Harrelson actually was kind of funny in, in, in his very limited screen time. Uh, it was much better. His costume, I'll say this, looked way better than uh, his costume looked in, I guess we'll say, the, the first Venom. Remember, he was, like the, he was in like the after credit scene or whatever. Um, that stunk, but he was actually pretty funny. Woody Harrelson, I'm an apologist for Woody Harrelson. I like him. Um, but generally speaking, again, Tom Hardy is the real reason you're going to see this movie. You want to see his physical acting and him being silly and delivering deadpan lines to Venom, who's like, he's like the straight man to Venom's like, you know, his comedic stylings. And I admit, in my experience with Spider-Man, the cartoons, I don't really remember Venom being silly, but I'm told that he is kind of, he. this can be part of his personality. I don't know how true that is. Maybe if you're listening to this, you are a Venom fan. I don't know if that's true or not. But ultimately, look, I enjoy it. I did enjoy it, right? It was silly. It was kind of fun. Um, and this might be a criticism that we'll talk more about when we get to the Eternals, when the, in that actual review of the Eternals. But I think that whenever you see these kinds of superhero movies that are directly or tangentially tied to the Marvel Universe, I think you always, and I think I mentioned this during the Shang-Chi review as well, 
I think there is a danger in always trying to figure out how this movie is related to the larger Marvel universe. And because you kind of know this, these movies, these Venom movies are not, it kind of makes it a little more, I don't want to say refreshing, but you kind of go, oh, yeah, you don't have to think about this. And then actually, funnily enough, the end credits scene happens, and that is actually directly tied to the Marvel universe. And I have a feeling we'll see that reflected in Spider-Man No Way Home. It might very well be an after-credits scene, which I think is the most likely thing. But, um, but still, I, I, kind of funny, right? But yeah, ultimately speaking, Venom Let There Be Carnage had some entertaining moments from Woody Harrelson and Naomi Harris. Tom Hardy, again, is the physical actor who you want to see him, like, pretend like he's not in control of his own movements, doing, like, involuntary movements and so on. Him arguing with Venom like they're the odd couple, like an old married couple or whatever. That's, that's like, the main character relationship in this film. And yeah, it's fine. It's fine, right? It's, a, it's like the perfect mindless film. Probably not as good as the first Venom. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think it shows in how many people want to go see this movie. I'm sure the pandemic didn't help, but yeah, ultimately speaking, Venom, Let There Be Carnage is, is a worthy watch if you're into superhero movies, but if you were like on the fence about Venom and then you didn't like it or you were kind of meh on it, you will not like this movie because it is just more of the same. That kind of does it for our, uh, mini bite-sized reviews. Uh, I hope those helped a little bit. If you haven't seen them, at least help make a decision on whether or not you want to or should see them. Um, That's what I'm here for, right? To see the movies that you don't want to and don't have time to. Because if you didn't know this, again, much like we talked about, if you're the kind of person who listens to a movie podcast, this probably doesn't apply to you. But I want to say, at least in North America, the average person goes to see I think three movies a year, and that was before the pandemic. I bet that number has somehow gone down. I've definitely seen more than three movies in 2021. Um, And like I said before, that'll probably go up by one more movie when it comes to Spider-Man. But yeah, all things considered, I don't blame people for not wanting to go to theaters because it is a pandemic and also because going to the theaters is expensive, right? That's just that's just the reality of the situation. But um, so like I said, that that kind of is why I like to do the podcast and also why I like to do these mini reviews, even if we're not going to spend a whole ton of time on them. Um, Let's get into our four main reviews, though. Let's get right into it. Uh, Again, we're going to do Dune, No Time to Die, Encanto, and The Eternals. Uh, And I got to say, I want to start with Dune because it has been a long time since there has been an adaptation of of these movies. Frank Herbert, uh, who wrote these movies, like, I don't even remember when, like in the 50s or 60s, right? They're old novels. And uh, Dune is, I think a lot of sci-fi fiction readers, well, I guess sci-fi, well, is sci-fi all, is all sci-fi fiction? No, I'm not sure. I like sci-fi. I guess there could be like real sci-fi. I don't know, whatever. Let's not get into that conversation. I don't want to, I don't want to sound stupider than I already sounded there. So we'll just avoid that and uh, get straight into the review. Here is the review for Denise Villeneuve's adaptation of Frank Herbert's work, Dune. I think ultimately speaking, I was a little worried when it came to what this movie would look like, not because I didn't have faith in Denise Villeneuve, because as I've spoken about his movies before, I've seen basically all of them, and I think I've loved every single one of them. Not just liked, like I've really enjoyed Villeneuve's work, not just because he's Canadian, that does bias me a little bit, I freely admit that, but no, I really liked Dune, I wanted to go see it at TIFF, didn't get a chance to see it, saw it online, didn't see it in theaters, probably a wrong move, but still... Uh, I wanted to limit the amount of times I was going to theaters, despite the fact that I have gone a lot. Um, But still, Dune, 
is the rare kind of sci-fi movie where, like, despite you, the viewer, potentially not knowing Jack Bleep about this universe, this film is not afraid to just throw really dense terms and visuals in your in your direction, your general direction, right? Like the Ben Jesserid and the Quizaz Hadarak and all these things. And and apparently despite the fact that all those all those really like really out there sci-fi names exist. There's also a guy named Duncan Idaho in this movie, uh, which is uh, I guess it was funny then when it was funny when the books came out. I'm sure it was funny when uh, we got the uh, Lynch version, the Lynch adaptation of this uh, this this film, this this novel, this material. Let's say, and it was funny now. It's been funny all the time. It's been funny forever. Uh, and Jason Momoa was actually pretty good as uh, as Idaho's character. It wasn't a huge bit. Don't get me wrong. It was basically it was basically look cool and hot. Uh, and beat people up, and that's exactly what he did. And and you know what? I'm not going to spoil his fate. Let's say, but uh, eh, we probably won't see Duncan Idaho in part two. Probably right. <laughs> that way, I I actually do think the Dune series has is a number of books, not just one book. The first book is called Dune, then there's like Children of Dune and Blank of Dune or whatever, right? In those books, I actually do think, from what I remember from when I was younger, I do think they do bring back the Duncan Idaho character, like, through cloning or something. So maybe if the Dune series continues on and on and on down the line, maybe we get that eventually, but who knows, right? But either way, this movie, its strength lies in its visuals. There is no doubt about it. The Like, the special effects look amazing. The mood that the film sets at all times is so great whether it's from what you're seeing like on the sands of Arrakis, what you're seeing in space, what you're seeing from other characters. What, you know, like, I mean, I think one of the most striking visuals in my mind is when you see Stellan Skarsgård's character, the Duke or the Baron, pardon me, the Baron Harkonnen. He's like the kind of main villain, let's say, of this whole saga, right? When you see Baron Harkonnen for the first time, it is monstrous. It is menacing, and it is gross. And that is a that is absolutely a uh, a testament to Skarsgård himself, who we've seen in like a million movies over the years. But it is also a testament to just the vision of people like Villeneuve and the costume prop set design, the, the, their whole departments, right? All all of those departments. It is it is just great. So, um, I just I can't say enough about how much I liked this movie. I will say though that the one flaw this movie has is. It's not It's not that it's rushed by any means, because this movie is two and a half hours, right? And it just feels like, and I know this book is so dense that it had to be more than one film, but at the same time, the movie ends on such a, It's again, it's not a cliffhanger necessarily, but it just ends on a point where you, you are left wanting more, and I'm sure that was by design, because we kind of always figured this was going to be just the first part. And I think while this movie is built in theaters, it's just Dune. I think when I, when I saw it, it said Dune Part 1, right? And that was before Part 2 got greenlit. And, of course, all the rave reviews for it came out and so on. And now Part 2 has been greenlit. will come out in a couple years. Um, so that's great. Don't get me wrong. It's just my complaint really is – and I, I'm, this is not really, like, levied at any one person. It's just 
I wanted more. Like, if this movie could have been three hours, I would have wanted more. If it could have been three and a half hours, I would have wanted more. Like, you know, people always clamor for the Lord of the Rings, like the extended editions. And by the way, Lord of the Rings is going to be 20 years old. Um, or, it, pardon me, is 20 years old. Is 20 years old. The first one, uh, as that came out in December of 2001. And now we're in December 2021, which is crazy. That is crazy. But Dune, I, I, I think, honestly, has a real chance to be like the Lord of the Rings of the like the the 20s let's say which is kind of weird to say itself right but uh just in terms of the 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 care and detail that went into it obviously in a much different way because all the different ways let's say that peter jackson did things and, and was allowed to do things with less digital stuff compared to like how things are done now in 2021 with Denis Villeneuve and a whole host of other directors right but that's beside the point dune very well done the epic fantasy slash sci-fi that I think a lot of people have wanted. Very well done. The acting, um, I haven't really mentioned it apart from Skarsgård. It was very good. I mean, it's, again, you know, sometimes people say, like, less is more. That's kind of how I felt when it came to Dune. There wasn't a lot of, like, emotes and and a lot of, like, overacting, like, oh, my God, my father is dead. Like, there wasn't a lot of that, right? Why I did an English accent there? We'll never know. I'm not sure. Not even sure why I did it. But, I, I you know, like, Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, uh, Oscar Isaac, I mentioned Skarsgård and Jason Momoa, uh, Josh Brolin, certainly, Rebecca Ferguson. You know what's funny? In all the press tours for this movie, Tom, uh, Tom Holland, Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, hard to, easy to get them confused. They look kind of similar, right? But uh, young white dudes, again, you know, kind of appeal to the same people, let's say. That's <laughs> um, neither here nor there. Uh, Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya had, have done like the lion's share of the press, probably because they are the most bankable young stars and they want the people who are fans of them to go see Dune. I understand that from a press, a press perspective. Uh, Zendaya is in this movie... Zendaya? Zendaya? I'm not sure. I, I gotta figure that out before we talk about No Way Home. Uh, Zendaya... God, I'm, I'm already screwing it up. She is in this movie for... Mm, 15 minutes, maybe, let's say? 15 minutes? Is that fair? A cool 15. A cool 20, if you want to be generous, right? She's not in this movie very much, other than, like, random, like, Come hither. Come hither, Paul. You know, a lot of those, like, really, like, weird, like, vision-type moments, she's not in this movie a lot, which is really funny, apart from, like... And I think the bulk of her 15 minutes is at the very end. Like, it's the final 50... Like, if, if her if her screen time before the final 15 minutes, minutes was added up, you'd probably get, like, 45 seconds, and then the rest of that, what, like... 14 minutes, 15 seconds is at the end of the movie, right? That's just a fact. That is just a fact. I'm not bagging on her. I, I think she's going to be great in her in her role as Chani for the second part, maybe a third part if they go that way. But still, it's just kind of funny to think that that's uh, how they chose to do things. The female lead in this movie is Rebecca Ferguson. And she, I got to say, I have loved her since I saw her in that Mission Impossible movie. The first one and when she was in uh, Ghost Protocol, or pardon me, not Ghost Protocol, Fallout, uh, I really, I like her. I Generally speaking, I like her. She's a kind of a, she has like this like toughness that I think like you some you sometimes don't always think about because she's also like, you know, I'm, I don't think this is being crass. She's also really hot, right? And I think maybe that's informed by the Mission Impossible movies. I think that's, I, I dare say that's what most people who go to see blockbusters said know her from. And she is great as the mother in this movie who kind of has a past you know, specifically with the uh, the Ben Gesserit and so on in terms of like what how her what her relation is to Oscar Isaac's character and what her relation is with her son, who is Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul. Um, it just is great. I got to say, really great. 
Um, she might be she might be the one who gave the best performance in the movie if we're going to split hairs. But again, all things considered, I don't think it was like a, a huge, uh, I don't know, like a huge difference when it comes to acting because so much of it is like lore heavy and visuals, right? So, but I think, again, I think that's what people want. If you get good, like passable to good acting in these kinds of movies, kind of like you did for Lord of the Rings, since, we're, since, since I made that comparison earlier, I think you'll be happy. You know what I mean? I think, I think you're happy with what you get. Because everything else is also so good. So it's just kind of like the cherry on top. But again, Dune, very much worth your time. Um, they already have Greenlit Part 2. Otherwise, I'd go say go see it to support it. Still, though, if you can see it online streaming, I hardly recommend it. Because it is a, is a visual feast, as they like to say on the pull quotes. And I will, I will wholeheartedly, for once, agree with one of those. Because it doesn't feel disingenuous to say. All right, let's move right along to the next film I wanted to get to tonight. No Time to Die. Daniel Craig's final Bond movie of his whole career. Oh, boy. It was, honestly, it was a great film. A meaty a final entry for Daniel Craig. So let's get right to it. The final outing as 007 for Daniel Craig in the world. No Time to Die. I should have known I know this is not a particularly uh, novel or new joke, but given the fact that this movie has probably sat on a dusty film server in like, you know, some Hollywood basement for the better part of two years or maybe more than two years at this point. uh, And also given the way this movie ends, and we will talk about the twist because, you know what, it's not really a twist, but we'll just talk about this ending, this ending that has gotten people kind of a little up in arms um, so if you don't want to be spoiled, I would suggest staying away from this particular review because I, I think it's key to talk about, like, given the way, given that this is Daniel Craig's final movie as Bond, I think we have to talk about the way this movie ends. But so I apologize for the spoilers. So, you know, this you've been warned. Let's, let, you've been warned. But again, given the ending and, and the time it took for this movie to come out, I guess there is lots of time to die. The no, the no time to die thing is a lie. Lots of lots of time to die for James Bond and for Daniel Craig, for everyone in this movie. And in a way, I mean, we knew this was going to be a goodbye for Bond. I mean, you know, we thought Skyfall might be the or Skyfall might be the last one. Then they offered him a boatload of money to do Spectre. Thought that might be the last one. They offered him a boatload of money to do this one. So I'm not going to criticize him for turning it down, uh, or not turning it down, I should say. But I, I think No Time to Die is immediately the third best at worst James Bond movie that Daniel Craig has done because he's done five, right? He's done Casino Royale. Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, and this one. So I, I would say probably it goes. It probably goes Skyfall, Casino Royale, this one. Even though I still don't think I don't think Spectre and Quantum of Solace are like bad films by any means. But I do think I do think that this movie is uh, very very good, and I think it's an appropriate send off for Daniel Craig. And let's get to that ending. He dies, right? James Bond dies in this movie. And I mean, it's something you're so not used to, to the point where even though you see a giant rocket fired from a battleship explode and the explosion engulf his bare body, you still think to yourself, ah, 007 probably lives, right? He kind of got out of it. And then even though you see the the main characters like M and Money Penny and so on you see them all clink a glass in his honor and drink his favorite drink and say goodbye double seven you still got to think he lives right i guess i don't know i guess this is just an acknowledgement that the five bond movies of daniel craig are its own self-contained thing maybe the best way of looking at it 
after seeing it and thinking about it a little bit, maybe the best way of looking at it simply, simply is to look at it kind of the way Batman does it, right? Because I don't think, like, I don't think we all expect that the same, like, like that the, the different Batmans are the same Batman, right? I think we all just kind of accept at this point that there are not like multiple Batman, but we kind of all accept that it's just the adventures of Batman. Here's one of them. Here's a movie about one of those adventures, even though I know Batman and then Batman returns with like the Jack Nicholson character. And then of course the next one, like the Joker, Nicholson's taken the Joker. And then the next one being uh, Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer as, as uh, the penguin and, and Catwoman respectively. Um, imagine if I'd screwed that up with the whole respectively thing. Imagine Danny DeVito as Catwoman. Woo. <laughs> right. I, Michelle Pfeiffer would have been a fine penguin, I think. But anyways, um, you know, you know what I mean? Like that's you kind of accept that they're just different adventures, right? In in your head, in your mind, because it's different takes by different actors and different directors. And I think that is how we've always looked at James Bond. I agree, but I almost feel like like the Sean Connery, Roger Moore, George Lazenby, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan movies were viewed as the adventures of James Bond, and those were all interchangeable. Whereas the Daniel Craig Bond movies almost feel like how Christopher Nolan's take on Batman was, right? Because Christian Bale had his own set story as Batman within that three-movie arc, and then it was done, now we're getting a new Batman, right? We had Ben Affleck as Batman, now we're going to get Robert Pattinson as Batman. So that's what I mean. I th- that's kind of how I look at it. It's like it's a self-contained arc of five movies because the, mo- the, the the story is consistent over those five movies. But then when we get the next James Bond, whether it's Tom Hardy or Richard Madden or someone else entirely, it's going to be a whole new take on Bond. Um, I wish, you know, what? I wouldn't mind going forward real quick. If when we do eventually get a new James Bond movie, I wouldn't mind if they decided to go back to like the 60s or 70s. You know what I mean? Like if they went back in time and we kind of got like a Bond period piece, I think that'd be kind of cool. Right. That'd be kind of a fun take just because, I mean, you know, I don't think they're going to reboot him again for like a gritty version of Bond. I think it'd be kind of cool to see like a Bond in his prime with a modern like a 2021 era esque take on like the 60s. Right. To get a period piece, because I mean, like we're, we're far we're far away from the 60s, far enough away from the 60s. that I think making movies set in that time is can be considered a period piece. And instead of like, you know, the 1800s or whatever being the prime example for what you would consider a period piece. Right. Anyways. As uh, No Time to Die is concerned, uh, it's a goodbye for a lot of characters. It's a goodbye to uh, Felix Leiter as well, right? He dies. Um, of course, I think whenever you talk about Bond, because I don't think we need to talk too much about Daniel Craig. He was fine. He was the same kind of Bond as he always is. Uh, I guess a, a more weary Bond, uh, and we'll get, to, we'll get to that weariness thing in a second, but I do want to talk about Rami Malek's character, whose name... Like, whose character's name, I don't remember. Honest to God, I don't remember. And I think that just goes to show how unimportant, ultimately, that character specifically was to the plot. Like, his plan overall to, like, dominate the world, punish the world for its misgivings, as all the Bond villains generally do. Like, yeah, it was it was fine. It was evil. Uh, it was it was it had high stakes and so on. But it just, his character specifically was kind of, Meh. You know what I mean? His character specifically was kind of like whatever. And he's like he's so inconsequential to like how he relates to Bond other than what happens at the literal end of the movie. It it just felt feels kind of like a waste, right? It feels like a waste. And not be I'm not saying that you know, you heard me you've t- heard me talk about this podcast before that I don't necessarily think that 
Rami Malek deserved to win that Oscar. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think lip syncing to uh, to Freddie Mercury songs and Queen songs is enough to earn you an Oscar because he wasn't singing, right? It wasn't like uh, in Rocket Man uh, when 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 they sang, they actually sang those songs with their own takes on them. He's just lip syncing. I don't think that deserves an Oscar. Anyway, I don't want to get. Let's not get on the soapbox show. Let's not do it. Don't do it. Um, it's just. Rami Malek is a fine actor. He's not a particularly great actor, and I don't think he really elevates the role of whatever that guy's name was. It wasn't Dr. Noah, we'll say that much, but he doesn't elevate the the role so much that it's like one of the more memorable villains, right? Like, you remember uh, the villain from Skyfall, right? You remember Mads Mikkelsen from Casino Royale. I don't really remember Rami Malek's character, right? Like I said, I barely remember the guy's name, but anyways... Uh, Ultimately, No Time to Die, I think, is a nice goodbye for Bond. Um, some may take issue, some may take offense with the end because James Bond's supposed to be invincible. I did like Lashana Lynch's character as the kind of... Because the movie fast-forwards some time, and in the time Bond has been gone... Uh, her character is the new 007, right? She takes over that designation. And then out of respect in the movie, she gives it back to Bond and he is 007. Then I, I presume going forward in there, if, if you were to get a sixth movie, I would imagine that Bond, um, or pardon me, that 007 would be her, that character. I would imagine. And she's cool, like effortlessly cool, right? And I think that's kind of neat. Uh, but ultimately... I, you know, it, 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 it like, it doesn't, I don't think we're going to get like a female Bond in the next movie, right? It almost feels like I would watch like a mini series or something about her character because she was awesome. But again, I don't think you're seeing that character again, given that this is the end of the Daniel Craig era, right? Anyways, she was, she was a definite bright spot. Um, I know Anna de Armas is also someone people had some curiosity about as a Bond girl. Like, I get, I, I don't think you can really consider her a Bond girl considering she's in this movie for like 15 minutes. Although I will say she instantly has chemistry with Daniel Craig. And if whether you want to attribute that to them being good actors or them having been around each other and knives out, whatever you can go with it, whatever direction you want, I'm not going to quibble too much, but she had the best chemistry of any other actor in this movie with Daniel Craig, which is impressive considering how little she's on screen for, right? But uh, again, some good action sequences with her and Daniel Craig in that kind of like ballroom-esque area you see them in. But uh, beyond that, she's not in the movie too much. So, you know, I can't really, it's hard to make too much of a judgment after that. But again, it's a great movie. It's a fun action movie, a little long. So uh, don't drink a large drink at the very beginning of the movie and then have to hold it like I did. Very bad idea. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, a worthy addition to the James Bond canon. And uh, I can't wait, as the movie says after the credits roll, I can't wait the next time James Bond returns. Let's get to the next movie on the list, and uh, we'll take a, a trip into the world of the animated. This is Pixar's latest film, Encanto. But it was my wedding day. It was my wedding day. We were getting ready, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. No clouds allowed in the sky. You walked in with a mischievous grin. Thunder. You're telling this story, or am I? I'm sorry, maybe that go wrong. I want to get to this right off the top, okay? You're hearing this song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, and this is, in my opinion, the best song in the movie. It's the most catchy song. It was the one I was humming as I left the theater. You would expect no less, I think, from a movie scored by at least the big musical moments by Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? Uh, Of course, we talked about In the Heights recently, He of Hamilton fame. He was involved with Moana, as we know, so he has that Disney, like the connection to Disney. So, you know, like you kind of expect that from Lin-Manuel Miranda. 
It's funny, though, outside of this song and maybe the opening song to the entire movie, um, because you know how musicals work, because this this movie is a musical, despite it being animated. I mean, again, that's like a tradition Disney is is well known for. It's not exactly a hot take or anything. But this movie doesn't have a whole lot of memorable songs outside of those two, I think. There are some. There are some that kind of get you a little bit, right, for a couple of moments. Um, but it's funny, I, I really was a little kind of taken aback because the rest of this movie is phenomenal. This is one of the best Disney Pixar movies maybe ever, right? And that's a pretty, that's pretty high. I, I know it may be a victim of the moment, prisoner of the moment, you know, recency bias, what have you. Sure, you can accuse me of that. I think this is one of the better movies. A large part of it has to do with the animation. It's crazy because... After I saw this movie, I went back and I was thinking about the music some more. And I was like, you know what? What are some other really catchy songs in like the modern era of Disney animation, right? Which I would say starts with Tangled, which I think came out in 2010. It's continued to a massive success with Frozen, of course, right? So if you go back, like I, I, I challenge you to see this movie and then go back and watch Tangled or Frozen and think those movies look good. Those movies, which are excellent films and were at the time very well animated, they look like crap compared to Encanto. And I'm not dumping on those movies specifically. That is just a testament to how good <laughs> Encanto looks. Like, I swear to God, the animators were just showing off at some point. Like, they're, they're, the main character, Mirabelle, who is voiced by the really the only main celebrity, the only celebrity at all in this movie, who is uh, Stephanie Beatrice, who I think most people would know from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, funnily enough. Um, John Leguizamo voices a character in this movie as well, but I think, like, given that Mirabelle is the main character, you know, that's the only one. I, you know, all the other people are, are like, artists and so on and just lesser-known voice actors who are also, like, Colombian or of Hispanic descent because these characters are all Colombian. Um, but, boy, like, whenever Mirabelle, like, is a... I think she's supposed to be like a talented seamstress or something, right? So you watch this movie. She clearly has like sewn patterns onto her clothes and she like makes her bags and stuff. And it's like you can see the th- each individual thread that goes into the patterns on her dress. Like, it's crazy how how detailed and lovingly animated the visuals in this movie are. I cannot speak enough on how pretty this movie is. And I know Disney has kind of, and Pixar specifically, has kind of like cornered they're like specific aesthetic when it comes to these kinds of things. But boy, it is a very pretty movie. Uh, but still, the music kind of disappointing. I think I've come to the conclusion that Lin-Manuel Miranda can only do like one kind of song. Like it's a kind of like spoken rhythm type. Like I, I don't want to say rap because it's not always rap. I don't want to say hip hop because it's not always hip hop. And I know from, from what I've read since seeing the movie that he does sample from styles that are popular within Colombia. Okay, fine. That's totally great. But I, I think I'm beginning to slowly sour on Lin-Manuel Miranda because it seems like he can only kind of write one kind of song. It was interesting in Hamilton, that, that musical, and I will never complain about the music in Hamilton. It is amazing. The music in Encanto, very good, but it's just kind of a samey-samey, right? Same old, same old. And I think I'm getting a little tired of it, right? Anyways, that's not to say it's bad. It's just that... The songs other than the ones we've heard, the one you heard at the beginning and the uh, uh, the beginning song. Who's on the amazing Happy Glows? Oh, you're not going to leave me alone, are you? Casita. Oh, yeah. Drawers. Floors. Floors. Let's go. This is our home. Yeah, that song, right? So that song. Apart from that one and the one you heard at the beginning of this review, they're all kind of meh, in my opinion. Anyways, uh, 
the core concept of this movie, I would say, is generational trauma. That's where I, that's where I fall on this, right? Because it's about this grandmother who is forced to flee from her home in an unnamed part of Colombia. You just know that they're in Colombia. You don't know where, but she is forced to flee from their home in Colombia because of. And again, it's not specified. But I think it's clearly referring to La Violencia, which I think is a period of time in Colombia's history that takes place like in the, from the 40s to like the late 50s or so. I admit I'm not 100% well-versed in like specific Colombian history. But again, um, it's a relatively famous period where like the regime, like if you didn't, you know, p- political regime, you didn't agree with it, they forced you out of your homes. And there was a lot of really people displaced and, you know, diasporas within the country and so on. You know what? We, I'm not gonna, we're not going to have like a political science course on like the history of Colombia here, but I think it's important to know that because knowing that it's based on a real event, I'm sure, I'm sure hit home for a lot of Colombians whose families were displaced by this in real life, right? I don't know. I just, when it comes to this movie, it hits home because, I mean, my parents are from Guyana, which is not too far from Colombia. They didn't have the same kind of problems, like to that certainly to that degree. But like just knowing that you had to leave and that your family experienced such hardship, and then that generational trauma that this grandmother received and experienced is like passed down to her kids, and then they pass it down to their kids. And so the the Mirabelle is the is the granddaughter of this this very brave woman. And it's funny, right? Because like the the main villain, there is no real villain. I guess the villain is like the concept of trauma, I suppose. But I guess if you really wanted to get technical, the villain is the grandmother only because she never resolved like deep, deep trauma issues that she had. And it get passed, gets passed on to her uh, her kids. And, and like I said, to the to the grandchildren. And I guess like the main kind of story beat that drives this movie forward is that every member of their family receives a gift by this magic candle that was gifted to the grandmother, I guess, like, by the world is well, kind of unclear, right? But I, I think, generally speaking, she, like, manifested this, like, magic candle that after her husband, you later learn, was quite viciously murdered in front of her eyes. And I'm sure she was, like, depressed and, and, and had PTSD from that for the rest of her life. But uh, I guess like, she manifests this candle that creates a house for them and seals off the valley where they are and... uh I guess, like, you know, the, over time, over generations, a, a, like a village springs up and they're like the protectors of the village and so on. Anyways, the candle later on grants all of her children and, of course, later on her uh, her her grandchildren uh, gifts, right? Magical gifts. I was trying to remember the gifts on my head and I, I think I remember all of them. The So let's see, the three children one of which is Mirabelle's mother, but the three children, the grandmother, grandmother does not have a gift. The three kids get her mood controls the weather for an aunt. Mirabelle's mother can heal food. Pardon me, can heal you with food. So like the food she bakes, if you eat it, it'll cure whatever ails you, whatever, whether it's a broken foot or like, you know, bee stings as we see in the movie. And the third Bruno, who is played by John Leguizamo, which is really funny. Uh, he, you know what's funny? He's the only actor in this entire movie. As soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, that's John Leguizamo. That guy, I don't know if it's because he plays that character from Ice Age that we've all, like, at least people of my age heard when they were younger. But uh, that that was made me laugh because I'm like, that's John Leguizamo. No doubt about it. Don't have to look it up on IMDb. That's who it is. He can see the future. He can see the future. Uh, the kids. So let's see. The aunt who can control the weather. Uh, she has, let's see, three kids, I think, right? She has the youngest one who can talk to animals, one who has super herring, and one who can shapeshift. 
Um, Bruno doesn't have any kids, and then the Mirabelle's siblings, because Mirabelle does not have a gift, which is the main kind of point, I guess. Her siblings, one is uh, super strong, like Hulk-level strong, and one is, I guess, perfect? I guess the idea is that she's like she's super pretty and hot, but that her actual power... It was unclear whether or not that was related to her power or not, but anyways, her power can be... She makes like plants bloom, like flowers bloom. So, of course, they all learn their lessons, and Mirabelle has her songs with both sisters and her family and so on. Um, but that she does not have a gift bugs her. Now, again, we don't have to get into the whole story beats of every single part of this movie, but I guess the point is that she obviously does have a power, and it's just not a magic power, right? She... I think like the grandmother's power is that she holds the family together. And more so, I would say Mirabelle's power, if you want to interpret it this way, is the power of empathy. That's what I would say. She has the power of empathy because she goes and she understands everyone's problems. She listens to their problems. She makes them feel a little better about themselves. And a lot of this is done through song, as as you might imagine. But I guess because the whole problem of this movie is with all this generational trauma that I mentioned, it's like, like because the grandmother... Like she, she counts on these kids and their and her grandkids to use their powers for good. And if they don't have powers, it like shatters the image the village have in their family, and they they feel unsafe. So she puts an unhealthy amount of pressure on everyone to like get a gift. And so Mirabelle is viewed as like less than right. And this all comes to a head in the last bit of the movie. Really, my only complaint of this movie is that they they bring that up for the first time with like twenty minutes left, and then they they heal it all. In like one conversation, I understand that's just for the sake of it being a 90 minute kids movie. But at the same time, you know, I complain a lot that I'd like to see movies that are longer or that I'd like to see movies that are shorter. This movie could have been longer. This movie could have been like 20 minutes longer, if only to get to the meat of their relationship a little more. Because it's not really touched on really at all until the very end, which is kind of a bummer, I think. So that's my only real complaint. But again, Encanto, beautifully, gorgeously animated. Okay, music. We don't talk about Bruno. Still clearly the best one. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm not going to complain too much about the flaws because I still think from top to bottom, this is one of the best Pixar movies we have seen um, in a really long time and tackle some really mature subject matter, which Pixar movies have always done. But again, kudos to the directors for this one because I, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. All right, let's get to the final review of this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. And of course the most recent entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, the good old MCU, which everyone loves to complain about, and people have been doing, boy, their fair share of complaining about this movie, Chloe Zhao, Oscar winner Chloe Zhao, for Best Picture and Best Director, her take on the latest film into the MCU, The Eternals. Sugar for comedy last night. He said his girl called him. She said, can I come over? She said, yeah. You know, whenever I see a Marvel movie these days, I find it hard not to think of those comments made by Martin Scorsese, right? Like, that these are not movies, really, that they're kind of like roller coasters. Look, you guys know, based on if you listen to this podcast, you know I like the Marvel movies. You know I like them. I liked The Eternals. I liked this movie. I Did, did I love this movie? No. Did I forget about this movie almost immediately after I left? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and again, th- th- does that mean it's bad? I don't think so. I think, but I I do think that that makes 
look, it makes it what Martin Scorsese said fair. I think that's fair. I think that these movies are designed. I think they are made, not by an algorithm, but I think they're intentionally made by Feige. I think I was at Phage this whole time. Maybe that might be like the Canadian in me, but I think his name is actually pronounced Feige. But either way, I think that is an intentional choice made by the head of Marvel Studios and everyone else who works under him and Disney as a whole to be like easily digestible, consumable, like pieces of content that then are large, like a, a small piece of a larger puzzle. Now, we can have a discussion, and I think at a later date, because it's a longer discussion, as to whether or not that is good for movies, whether or not that is a good state for the industry to be in, that, like, the the Westerns of today, and that was another thing that caused some consternation. People come, I think it was what Ethan Hawke compared Marvel movies to Westerns. I don't think in that, you know, I think in, in, in the sense that they are a genre onto themselves and that you make a lot of bank by being in them, right? I think that's all he really meant. I I think, personally... The Eternals is largely enjoyable, like I said, easily forgettable. None of the individual Eternals in this movie, of which there are many, I don't even remember all of them, I'll be completely honest, but none of them are super out there memorable, in my opinion. Uh, you know, Gemma Chan and Richard Madden being, I guess, the most important ones. Kit Harrington is in this movie for like five minutes and is really in there just to set up an appearance in a future Marvel movie, as as tends to happen, right? But uh, Gemma Chan and Richard Madden are like the main, main characters. Um, Salma Hayek, Angelina Jolie, kind of, sort of in it. You know, their individual plot lines are kind of thin, in my opinion, it's really the the Chan Madden show. Gemma Chan, I like her a lot. I've liked her since she was in Crazy Rich Asians. I remember she was like the Unicron, like Herald or whatever, in like Transformers Five, like that last night movie. Maybe it was in four. I don't remember now. But she was in she was in the like the Transformers movies, and you could barely tell it was her because she was all CGI. But my point is that she is great, and I'm looking forward to seeing her in more movies. Uh, it does do a good job of explaining the Celestials and explaining the Eternals. It kind of has like a title card thing at the beginning where it kind of has to explain things to you a little bit. And again, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too wordy. It was like three sentences or whatever. But still, um, all I could think of was uh, the the main, like the Arashem, who is the main Celestial. I'll say this. They do a fantastic job of like conveying size and scale with the Celestials when you see the Eternals were like human sized, like kind of be held in the palm of their hands. And they're like literally the size of planets, right? Like larger than planets. They're like planets to these guys are like holding a basketball or something, right? Like that's how they view, maybe even a baseball. Like My point is they're massive. They're friggin' massive. And they did a great job of conveying that. Uh, it really makes me, it makes me confident that if we do ever get to see like a reboot of Galactus, um, in the in the Marvel Universe, and I'm sure we will eventually. It makes me confident that we will see him done correctly. Because remember when he was done in the uh, Fox um, Fantastic Four movies? It was like a cloud of smoke or something, and people were like, what the F? This stinks. This sucks, right? So the Celestial's pretty well done. Um, it's funny because the main Celestial, again, Arshem, is voiced by David Kay. And okay, so if you don't know who David Kay is, I don't blame you. If you are of the vintage of me... This is a voice you might recognize. Spiders spin their webs, yes, but I spin them larger. Yeah, right, yeah. 
I recognize that voice. Good old Megatron. Good old T-Rex version of Megatron in Beast Wars, or Beasties, I guess, as it was called in Canada. Beast Wars, I think, everywhere else. But by the way, uh, that's what I I remember that. And like, as soon as I heard Arshem's voice, I'm like, God, where is he from? Where is that voice from? I have no idea. And then I realized afterwards, when I saw David K, I'm like, oh my God, that is Megatron. That is so good. Um, all I could think of was at the end of this movie, because so they, they you learn that there's a celestial living inside Earth, and uh sure fine um and that its birth will kill everyone on earth because the planet will explode so of course they want to stop that hey i would want that to be stopped too the way they stop it in the end is by having Gemma chan turn the eternal to stone we don't have to go into the whole mechanics of why and what how and why she does this but the like she she basically kills it right and at the end of the movie arsham comes and like takes them they're like he's like well everyone we're going to have to see why you did this. Come back home. We'll evaluate if Earth deserves to be exterminated after all. And they leave, right? Clearly setting up some future installments, whatever. That's what Marvel does. All I could think of was when he arrives, like if he had been like, hey, guys, why did you do that? Oh, now we got to fill out some paperwork. That's kind of like, it almost felt like had he sighed, it would have, if this was a Guardians of the Galaxy movie, they would have done something silly like that, right? As it stands, movie takes itself pretty seriously, which I think, you know what, might be what people don't love about this film. I think people think it takes itself too seriously. The main comedic relief in this film, I would say, is Kumail Nanjiani's character, um, King O, which I think it's just a stupid name. Personally, I have never been all that enthralled by Kumail Nanjiani. I kind of think he's a little overrated. Maybe that's heresy because he is one of the few popular brown actors in Hollywood. And I, I think it's high time we got more brown people movies, like in mainstream Hollywood. Like people, like look, all sorts of ethnic persuasions get their own movies now, right? Which I think is great because more diversity is sorely needed in Hollywood. We saw the success with Black Panther. We saw the success with Shang-Chi. Um, we saw the success with Crazy Rich Asians. I just talked about Encanto and, and, and like Hispanic people getting those kinds of movies. I think that's wonderful. Brown people need to get their movies now, too. And honestly, I kind of thought that the way it had been sold with, like, look at the Bollywood scene with King O, right? All I could think of was, God, Kumail Nanjiani is going to set us back a hundred years when it comes to brown people getting represented. And you know what? To his credit, he didn't. He was actually pretty funny. It was in moderation. I didn't hate it. In fact, I actually very much liked it. Maybe my favorite Kumail Nanjiani role, and I know he was nominated for an Oscar, writing still, but for the big sake, I understand. I'm fully aware of that. Didn't love that movie. Anyways, my point is, he was fine. And again, Madden, Chan, Jolie, Hayek, all the rest of them, who some of them names, I don't remember. I'll be completely honest. They're all largely fine, right? Largely fine. But uh, again, eh, right? Eh. Uh, Don Park, who is in this movie, and I believe that is his anglicized name, but either way, he, like, he plays Gilgamesh, because the whole idea is that these Eternals come when, like, you know, 10,000 years ago or whatever, and their presence on Earth is responsible for the legends we know today, like, um, like Circe, like C-I-R-C-E, Circe, right, or, uh, Richard Madden's character, Icarus, right, like, you know, he flew, flew too close to the sun, and, of course, they did something with the son with his death in the end of the movie. I'm sure a little on the nose for me, but I get it. <laughs> uh, and, of course, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Athena, right? Angelina Jolie's character is Athena, not Athena, but Athena. I guess it was something the Greeks and Romans got wrong. Um, and uh, Gilgamesh is uh, Don Park's character. And uh, 
I believe he was in the original Train to Busan, which was that Korean movie. You remember that one? And they're now thinking of remaking that. It's just funny. He's a pretty popular actor, like in in Korea, and I would say like in Asia in general. Very popular actor, but uh, it was just kind of so. It's kind of nice to see him in a Marvel movie. But he, of course, is one of the few Eternals that dies, which is kind of a bummer. So, anyways, I, I guess. Like I said before, when you watch Marvel movies, I feel like you sometimes get caught up in like thinking to yourself, how does this fit into the larger Marvel universe? And I admit I thought about that a couple of times. And I also thought to myself, why the hell, where the hell are the other Avengers? Like, why aren't they coming when this giant hand is rising into like the Indian Ocean or something? Where the hell is everybody? Right. Okay. whatever. You know what? I can excuse that. Maybe this takes place during a period where they're all like doing their laundry at the same time. Like, who knows? Right. But. Ultimately speaking, uh, I, I know I'm kidding. I'm kidding and nitpicking a little bit here. It was fine. Was it an amazing film? No, it wasn't. But it is hardly the worst Marvel movie. Hardly. Thor The Dark World, the Hulk movie with Edward Norton, Iron Man 2 are all far worse movies. And I think this movie is better than some of the next like tier. We, we like to tier things on this podcast, right? That's what I like to do. I'm sure when Spider-Man comes out, we'll probably do another one where we kind of tier the tier them and talk about the latest state of Marvel Universe. I want to talk a little bit about the the Disney Plus TV shows as well. But The Eternals is a fine entry. May not be anything special, but you know what? I you know I like said I like to say uh, wait till this movie comes out on Netflix. Maybe wait till it comes out until you, you can watch it for quote unquote for free on Disney Plus because. That way you save yourself a trip to the movie theater because I say this, I see this movie twice in theaters, uh, once with w- twice with friends like who hadn't seen it because they wanted to see it. So I, I obliged and watched it with them. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's again fine movie, nothing all that special. Yes. That does it for this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. We are done chatting about movies. We crammed seven movie reviews, small and large, into this uh, episode of the podcast. Um, I just wanted to address one thing before we say goodbye. I did say that uh, at the top of this episode, I believe, that this probably will be the last episode of the podcast. I think it's still likely it is, but um, I will be doing at some point, whether it's before the end of 2021 or the very beginning of 2022, we'll talk a little bit about Spider-Man No Way Home, just because, like I said, I want to do a little bit of a, what shall we call it, housekeeping you know, kind of a, of a of a overview, let's say, of the state of the Marvel universe right now as we head into a new year. Spider Man No Way Home being, of course, the final movie that you'll see from Marvel in uh, twenty twenty one, including the um, including the Disney Plus TV shows, right? Because there have been a lot that have come out this year. Uh, what like I th- have all of them come out this year, right? It was uh, it was WandaVision, Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and Hawkeye. I think all of them came out in twenty twenty one. It's been a long year. I don't actually remember when the year even started at this point. Um, but with all that stuff that's come out, I want to do a little bit of a, a, you know, housekeeping with that. So maybe we'll get Josh Goldberg on who has talked to Marvel movies with me in the past. Maybe Rob Wong as well. Uh, my pals from, uh, from work and certainly beyond, but, uh, yeah, we'll do that. If, if not by the end of the season, by the end of the year, by the end of the month, we'll do that, um, at the beginning of 2022. But either way, if I don't speak to you before then, thank you so much for listening. Have a Merry Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, have a very happy holidays. Enjoy some, I hope you uh, get to enjoy some well-deserved time off. Um, But until then, thank you as always for listening and have a great night.